How challenging is it to be both black and queer on college campuses? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When I was growing up, it was common for America to be referred to as a melting pot. Allegedly, everyone would blend into the monoculture. Differences would disappear, and that was believed to be a good thing. Of course, the reality is that throughout our history, Christian property-owning white males assumed dominance of our population, and as reflected everywhere, white heterosexual rule was unquestioned. Luckily for us in the 21st century, America is home to a myriad of cultures, all adding color and flavor to our mix. One melting pot yielding only white bread would be pretty darn boring. Think about all the variations of food and music we enjoy today. We have glorious richness, and thank goodness we are not a melting pot. But as with all cultures which inhabit America, to assume all Jews or Italians or Muslims uh, march in lockstep in their own home culture would also be wrong. For example, there's been a stereotype of black culture that social conservatism is widely shared and that homophobia is stronger in black culture than in white people these days. In his soon-to-be-published book, our guest today, Michael P. Jeffries, looks beneath that assumption. His book is Black and Queer on Campus, and Michael Jeffries reveals that complicated everyday realities of college life for black students who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. Black and Queer on Campus sheds light on what Jeffries describes as the black queer-tidian. Of course, I'll ask what that means. Michael Jeffries is Dean of Academic Affairs, Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College, and he's the author of three previous books on race and American culture, Thug Life, Race, Gender, and the Meaning of Hip-Hop, Paint the White House Black, Barack Obama and the Meaning of Race in America, and Behind the Laughs, Community and Inequality in Comedy. He's published dozens of essays and works of criticism in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Boston Globe and has been interviewed by the Washington Post, the New York Times, and NPR. Jeffries is a black, straight, cisgender author and professor with an A.B. from Swarthmore College and a Ph.D. from Harvard. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well, that made-up word, queer tidian. What does that mean? How did you come up with that? Well, I was kind of trying to think of something that captured the more mundane and ordinary experiences that queer black students have, because I think there's a stereotype of queer blackness as like almost kind of uniformly fabulous. Right. We think of figures like uh, RuPaul or uh, Billy Porter, the actor and singer. And we have one image um, of kind of a fabulous and spectacular black queer self-presentation and black queer life. But for the students I spoke with in the book, some of them identified as very outgoing and very spectacular and fabulous. And mm. others of them really told, told me about the kind of ordinary pace of their days and the ordinary enjoyments uh, that they indulged in, the pleasure of a good friendship or a good movie. And I wanted to open up space for them to talk about those experiences 
just as much as the experiences with more spectacular black queerness. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. Yeah, I certainly had not heard that word before. How did this book come to be? Tell us your motivation and about your research methods, please. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the question. So the motivation for the book, I think there were really two things. Uh, one is, uh, you know, I wrote the book during the uh, years of the Trump administration, and Black Lives Matter was a, such a powerful social force in our country at that time, and it still is, of course. And Black Lives Matter was really led when it was founded by queer Black women. So I was interested in speaking with college students about their political views and about the connection they felt to Black Lives Matter and whether or not they perceived it to be a queer Black social movement, given that its leadership identified uh, as part of that community. So that was one reason. And then the other reason was I was really interested in the role of student organizations, which have historically done a bunch of different things for all kinds of students on campus, whether you're talking about getting lesbian students or uh, students of color. They provided spaces for social gatherings. They've been spaces of advocacy. They've been spaces of education. And I was interested in learning more about how these organizations functioned, both at predominantly white institutions and at historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. Uh And so what I did then, what I did then was I started going out and looking for these student organizations. And I I, you know, look for publicly available, uh, publicly listed uh, student organizations and started reaching out to faculty advisors on these campuses to find out if they had students who might be interested in talking to me. And then I traveled around the country. I went to 13 different institutions and talked to as many students as I could find. So that was the motivation. And that was uh, how the how the project got started. And you say that most of the students interviewed for this book do not describe themselves as eccentric or radical and do not experience each moment of each day as a political act or affirmation. Of course, as with all college students, Black LGBTQ plus students face particular challenges, such as what? Yeah, so I think the challenges they face are things that we we all might expect, right? Again, I want to remind people the time that I was doing the interviews, uh, the rise of white supremacy, uh, the the increasing fear and uh, disparagement yeah. of LGBTQ folk. And, and we're seeing this again with the kind of panic around drag queens in this country yeah. right now. Yes. Uh, a really heavily politicized issue, right? So so at this time, um, what the students were telling me was that they were dealing with these these forces in their day-to-day lives. And, and they found many, you know, areas on campus where they felt quite safe and quite comfortable. But sometimes, you know, just walking around their college town, they couldn't be sure that they wouldn't be harassed in some way. Mm. Uh, They couldn't be sure that if they were in um, a queer relationship that they could display those affections publicly. Um, So so these are the kinds of kind of everyday concerns that they had, in addition to the everyday concerns of being a college student, picking the right major, right? Balancing your work study job with your course responsibilities making good friends. I mean, these are things that young people on college campuses, regardless of their background, are working through all the time as 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. So it's really that mix of concerns um, and challenges that, that all college students face, combined with the particular political pressures of living as, a, as queer Black folk uh, during the Trump years. And, and you know, one is who one is. That's just, <laughs> it is, of course. And, and there's a widespread assumption or sort of understanding that black culture is more socially conservative and homophobic, for example. And you you say the obsession with black homophobia is misdirection. Explain that, please. Yes. please yes. So I, I think that, you know, there is a stereotype of black homophobia. And 
one of the ways the stereotype functions is to distract us from the root causes of homophobia and transphobia in this country, uh, right? Mm. And by root causes, right, by root causes, I mean things like uh, legislation or non-discrimination legislation that for the longest time excluded sexual orientation as a category that people could be discriminated against within, right? Or uh, another root cause would be the treatment that LGBTQ plus folk have received by the medical establishment, right? Where we know that um, uh, queerness, uh, being gay, was pathologized as a disease until the right. 1970s in this country, right? So, mm. so when I say root causes, those are the root causes of homophobia and transphobia, not the kind of cultural leanings of Black folks. Now, having said that, right, having said that, it's worth noting that there are particular Black cultural practices and experiences that have historically lent themselves to social conservatism around gender that make it really difficult, my students told me, for them to be confident they were going to be accepted. In particular, they talked about their experiences in religious spaces, uh, both in, in places of worship and in the ways that religion was interpreted within their own families. So when I asked them what they thought the roots of homophobia were, so many of the students didn't really go to, well, the legislation in this country or the medical establishment in this country. They went to their experiences within religious spaces and the kind of conservatism of black churches. And, and the thing that I'll say about this is, first of all, there is no one way that black churches have dealt with this issue historically. Many black church spaces have been uh, quite welcoming to LGBTQ plus folk. But we know that there's also been a long pattern of social conservatism and a concern for a politics of gender respectability, a pressure to perform respectable gender roles because the ide ideas of the Black family and ideas of Black sexuality are so politicized and often framed in such racist ways that there's a, a pressure to perform a politics of respectability that comes out of Black religious spaces that runs counter to queer liberation and queer pride. Yeah, interesting. I can see that, how <laughs> wanting to be seen as as respectable is is kind of and and it's kind of a silent uh, oppression really uh that that they you know that, that one has to uh has to try to deal with to uh to be acceptable uh interesting and at historically black colleges and universities do students still feel a need i imagine they do to well, maybe not to downplay their queerness, to be embraced by members of their own race. Well, I think it really varies, right? It kind of depends on the kind of social functions and activities that you want to be a part of. I think the most, the basic way to answer this question is, as a uniform statement, that's not true, right? I didn't speak with students who told me, you know, every second of every day, I'm downplaying this part of who I am. No. That wasn't the kind of typical experience of the HBCU student. Uh, it, it just wasn't. Um, but what they said was they didn't necessarily feel supported by the leadership of the school, the faculty of the school. They didn't feel that the community necessarily really understood their experiences. They didn't feel celebrated. They didn't really feel in many cases like whole members of the community in ways that they would have liked to have been. So I think there's a distinction there between, you know, feeling unsafe and feeling like you have to hide who you are, which right. on balance wasn't really what I heard. Uh -huh. That wasn't really what I heard. But what I did hear was, there are so many ways that our experience could be better and so much more education that we feel like we have to do on our HBCU campuses to get to where we want to be. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're looking at uh, a, a part of uh, our culture that uh, 
we don't always look at, and that's uh, what life is like on campus for, for if you're black and queer. Our, our guest today is uh, Michael Jeffries, who's written a new book called Black and Queer on Campus, and uh, what that is like and what the, what the beliefs are and how, what's right about some of the beliefs and what's wrong about some of the beliefs and where we need to go from here still. What, what, what do queer black students do on campuses to deal with any old shame or discomfort about being queer, which, as you say, may have been reinforced by the parents or others who raised them, of course, including the churches. What what do they do about dealing with any old shame or discomfort? What did you learn about that? Well, I think this is a part where um, I really learned so much about the ways that queer Black student organizations are supportive to these students. Um, these organizations are spaces where uh, students who may be questioning their identity are sort of welcomed in, treated with kindness, compassion, uh, patience. These are spaces where queer Black folk make their first friends who kind of share their experiences and identities. And there's a mirroring process and a mentoring process mm. that goes on student to student. And I think that those organizational spaces are so important for so many reasons, for reasons around health and education, for reasons around social connection, uh, academic support. Uh, feeling valued, feeling a sense of connection to the college as a whole. I really found these organizations were immensely useful because they bonded students to each other and they bonded students to the college or university that they attended. So, so I think that's one of the main things is, you know, being part of these organizations really did help address so many of the challenges that these students were facing. Boy, it's so important to feel connected, to feel, you know, it, it, nobody wants to feel isolated. That's that's for sure. And uh, interesting that there are, uh, that, that that's being worked on, and you notice that. And I am, I'll, I'll hate to admit, but Billy Porter is somebody I'm not real familiar with, but he's, he's won Emmys, and he, he represents an aspect of black queer culture often referred to as fly and fabulous. I have to acknowledge, I'm not sure what that phrase means, fly and fabulous. And what is that stereotype? And what, what concerns you about that stereotype? Why is it just as important to represent quiet black queer pride and contentedness? Yeah, so, so I think the best way to think about black queer fabulousness is, you know, it's really articulated by uh, a writer named Madison Moore, who, who talks about the idea of fabulousness as a kind of a dangerous, uh. political, confrontational, and risky um, kind of practice that's about making a spectacle of yourself and your body because, right, you're tired of hiding who you are. So you kind of go the other way, right? Uh -huh. You kind of revolt against the expectations that you need to quiet down and you come out with a very loud style of self-presentation. And, and this kind of style of self-presentation is a kind of unabashed pride and, and, um, so, and celebration of, of, of who you are as a queer person, right? And that's what we see when we think of, again, the, the folks I, I kind of pointed to are Billy Porter, who's one of the stars of Pose, among other, among other television and movies, and, and RuPaul, who's, of course, famous uh -huh. for RuPaul's Drag Race, right? There's a kind of uh, spectacular, usually a spectacular kind of femininity that is performed mm. as a way to say, you know what, you can't keep me down. You can't suppress my gender identity. This is who I am, and I'm going to live it out loud. And that is, I want to be clear, 
that is such an important form of, of political resistance and such an important way that queer black folk kind of keep each other, al- keep, keep themselves alive and validate their own experiences. So I am not in any sense arguing against that kind of identity. I think it's absolutely essential um, for liberation. Having said that, right, that kind of performance, that kind of style of self-presentation is not the only way that queer black folk go about their days, right? I mean, there are so many more other quiet spaces of contentedness and contemplation and enjoyment that queer black folk have that just don't get celebrated as much because they're not as spectacular. They're not as eye-catching. And I think that sometimes, right, when we celebrate the more performative and spectacular forms of queerness, we can miss that there are all these other ways of being queer that are just as valuable and lead to just as much satisfaction and potential um, for happiness for the folks who practice them. So that's really what the book is about and what what the sort of case I'm making is, which is that we need to be able to recognize this spectrum of black queerness uh-huh. because that's its richness. Its richness is in its diversity. Yeah, I can I can see that. I know, of course, you know a lot of uh, queer people who uh, the, the the pressure. I I can imagine the the pressure to be fabulous. You know, like it's a natural reaction to to you know get out there, be loud and proud. But you can't do that all the time. You know that that that's a lot of pressure to do that, and you know you just. Everybody wants to be normal, somewhat, whatever the heck normal is, and, and not have that pressure to do that. And you say that faculty and student affairs staff should be leading, not following on these issues. What, tell us what you found about that. What would what would that leading look like? Yeah, so, so one of the things that I found um, in speaking with the students who were active in uh, student organizations was they felt that too much of the time responsibility for educating the campus fell on their shoulders as students, right? So educating Uh the campus around uh, terminology, educating their peers around um, sexual health and just good health practices, uh, mental health resources. Uh, They felt like they were being relied upon to do this sort of work. And in reality, that, that really should, students should be on our campus to be students. Uh, not to be sort of educating the entire campus community about all the issues that are important to them. That's great. That's part of their, part of their education. Sure. But that's not their kind of, you know, to my mind, that's not the kind of first reason that they're here. They're here to get an education first and foremost. So, so when I say that administrators have to be able to lead on these issues, I mean really a few things. Um, One is that, you know, we as college leadership should be recruiting a diverse, uh, diverse candidate pools to fill the positions that we have available for faculty and staff so that we're able to hire folks who come from all walks of life. And this is important because the students told me too often they're looking up at the ranks of the faculty or the ranks of the staff and not seeing enough people who reflect their experiences. That's one way in which we can lead. Um, Secondly, we need to make sure that the health services that we offer are really up to date in terms of the care that we offer for LGBTQ plus folk, whether it's mental health services or Uh, more sort of general physical health. Uh, There are particular concerns for these communities and a very fraught history of distrust uh, between Mm. LGBTQ plus folk and the medical establishment. So we need to make sure that we're leading and making sure that our students know that these health services places are places they can go where they will be affirmed and treated with the care that they deserve. And then I think that one other area that we can lead on some of these issues is making sure that we have space in the academic program to talk about uh, histories of feminism, histories of uh, the gay rights, LGBTQ plus rights movement, 
uh, issues pertaining to gender and sexuality. Uh, this is an area of research where there's so much exciting work happening and our students are hungry for it, and not only because they find it intellectually interesting in some sort of more divor divorced way, but also because it's personally important to them and it's a place where they start working out some of their identity. Um, so, so we need to honor and respect these academic fields and treat them with the same importance as we do all the academic fields that are part of our academic program. And the students can't do that. The students can't make a decision about how much to invest in our women's and gender studies and sexuality studies programs. Only college leadership and faculty can do the can do those things. Yeah, well, that's that's important to note. And and you're making me uh, think of a recent quote I, I read about uh, somebody saying that. Uh, Geez, I didn't think of myself as woke. I just thought of myself as understanding history. <laughs> yeah. It's important to understand history and how it's gotten there, how we got here. And it, 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 it builds up strength that way. And another thing you found is that queer student organizations are not always welcoming. And black student organizations are also not always welcoming. Tell us about that and about some of the challenges for black queer students when entering white queer spaces and socializing with their white gay peers. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think the best way to maybe talk about this is to think about it in terms of a predominantly white campus where most yeah. of the students on campus are white, right? And black students are a minority on campus. Sure. So in circumstances like that, what you often have is, you know, black student organizations that sort of carve out space for social and cultural events and spaces to make uh -huh. friends and, and socialize and, you know, advocate for their community on campus. Um, but oftentimes the agendas of those black student groups are not really aligned with some of the primary concerns of LGBTQ plus folk, right? Mm -hmm. So the students told me, right, when I go to those black spaces that are predominantly straight black folk, I can't really live out my kind of full queer identity because it's not going to be validated. It's not going to be appreciated. My issues are not going to rise to the level of what they feel are the most important issues facing our community on campus, right? And then on the other hand, sure. when they go to spaces on predominantly white campuses where there are LGBTQ plus student organizations, they find those LGBTQ plus organizations to be dominated by white students. Sure. So the leadership of those organizations is often white. The constituency is often, often majority white. So when they go to those spaces, they feel as though their concerns about racism, mm. elements of their identity and experiences with their family, where they're just different cultural practices, aren't shared or aren't understood, even though everyone there may be queer, right? They're not really understanding why the process of coming out might look different in my family than from your family. Or they're not really understanding like why we're organizing a social event around um, I don't know, some sort of like queer eye for the straight guy or some other sort of uh, white pop cultural queer phenomenon that doesn't really resonate with um, the kind of cultural preferences of the, the queer black students on campus. So there's kind of a disconnect, not only about addressing issues of racism in queer student groups, but also uh, when it comes to just the kind of basic patterns of social interaction and the cultural interests of students in those groups. So they find themselves in a space where you know, the black student organizations aren't necessarily as mm -hmm. welcoming as they would like, and the queer student organizations aren't necessarily welcoming either. So they start carving out different kinds of spaces for queer students of color and, and black queer students on, on predominantly white campuses. Well, this certainly is an interesting moment in American history of, of understanding and, and, you know, opening up to, uh, to diversity. And there's, we've come a long way, but yeah, there's a long way to go and to, to find this out. I mean, it's a process of discovery. And I can imagine here we are in 2023, 
among students in general, there's not a lot of optimism about the future among young Americans of all cultures. What about the students interviewed for your book? What about any kind of sense of optimism? Is it is it more difficult for uh, LGBTQ plus black students, or what about that yeah. optimism? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know this is one of the questions I ask students toward the end of the interviews with them, and I write about it quite a bit in the book. And again, I think it's important to remember the time in which I was doing the interviews. This was during the Trump years. These were years when white supremacy was on the rise, when we had. Um, we have data that show that people who are LGBTQ plus felt more pressure to hide their identity than ever mm. before. Um, so this was a very difficult time for, for these groups of people. And the students weren't so sure that there were going to be brighter days ahead. I mean, mm -hmm. they were, many of the students were really frustrated. They had lost faith in, in uh, you know, their, their neighbors. They believed that racism had been around for so long and they didn't really see how it would change. And, and there was just a lot of discouragement, right? So, so I think, and, the, and the, the tough thing about that is some of the students talked about how that kind of made them want to not pay attention to politics anymore. They were just mm. so discouraged by everything they had heard. They couldn't understand how it wasn't obvious to everyone, how harmful the current political moment was. And, and they just felt so um, uh, divorced from the political engagement because they didn't want to deal with it anymore. Uh, but on the other hand, then there were other students who were able to either seize on accomplishments they had um, achieved in college or um, placed their experiences in a longer view of history and been able to see, right, that what I have now is so much better than what I would have had three or four generations ago. Mm. Things have to continue to get better. And maybe we're in a tough place right now, but my future, my future has not been written yet. And there is space for hope and there is space for something so much better than what we have now. They didn't have, you know, uh, a kind of unshakable belief that things were destined to get better, yeah. but, but, but through kind of activism and through engagement and through imagination, they could imagine things as better than they were. But it wasn't the case, right, where students were saying, oh yeah, we're, our trajectory is, is looking up and 10 years from now we'll be better than we are and 20 years from now we'll be better than that. That wasn't the story that they were telling me. Well, yeah, I can certainly imagine. I imagine there must be some, some you know, different kind of victories, small and large, that, that do fill students with, with pride and hope. And that brings up one of the things I think we as a culture, as cultures, have to work on is what's been a very narrow definition of success that American, American culture has operated on for many, many decades money and status money and status that's like everything and and as you say just but maybe the reality is these are temporary ideas in the history of humanity as that's what, as you say are the challenges to the traditional constraints and notions of success useful productive in a in a general population as we proceed deeper into the 21st century maybe this can be a a, a good thing challenging that uh, narrow definition of success and maybe uh, you're seeing some of that tell us about that yeah i think we, i think the book does show some of those small moments of success those individual moments when you you know when you can feel a great friendship cementing itself um when you watch a movie that really changes your life or read a book that really changes your life, um, when you when you participate with your fellow students in student government and you get something done on your campus, those are lasting moments that really do stay with the students that I spoke with for a long time. And 
those are things that are outside of the traditional definition of success in terms of money, status, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are some more traditional things that they they aspire to. I mean, they aspire to be doctors. They aspire to uh, to have other jobs where they have they earn financial security and sure. and they they're they're challenged. So so those are those are some other realms where um, their definitions of success are are more traditional, but but nevertheless um, uh, quite useful. And then I think there are grander plans um, that students, some of the students aspire to and grander ideas that they're engaging with. You know, again, the context was we were seeing through the Black Lives Matter movement, we were seeing the police violence as kind of a daily occurrence when it comes to the experiences of Black Americans. And it's been this way for generations. And it was being laid bare before us at the time that I was interviewing these students. And ideas around prison abolition, um, ideas around alternatives to policing. I mean, these are ideas that were really gaining steam uh, during my time in my conversations with the students. And those are like radical, far-reaching ideas when you think about the history of this country. Um, but students, many students believe like change is kind of inevitable, right? Like we can't keep going on with the state of policing in this country the way that it is. We can't keep going on with the state of incarceration in this country the way that it is. It's it's unsustainable and it's going to break down eventually. So we need to be a part of the vanguard that's imagining alternatives to these systems. And that to them would be a measure of success far more powerful than the more traditional notions that we currently rely on. Wow, very useful information. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did the uh, research and that the book is there. The book is uh, called uh, Black and Queer on Campus, and it's put out by the NYU Press. Our guest has been its author, Michael P. Jeffries. Thank you so much today. And that's uh, there's a great sense of optimism there. Thank you. Thank you. I am what I am. I am my own special creation. So come take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. It's my world that I want to have a little pride in. My world, and it's not a place I have to hide in. Life's not worth a damn till you can say. International Women's Day was March 8th. In light of that, let's look at some of the things that young women in right-wing families are up against. Our guest right now is Amanda Marcotte, who is a freelance journalist uh, from Texas, but now living in the great town of Brooklyn, New York. She focuses on feminism, national politics, and pop culture, with the order shifting depending on her mood and the state of the nation. Well, Amanda, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, what brings us here together today is that you wrote about a a prom, a homeschool prom, in which a girl, Claire Ettinger, was the focus of chaperones, male chaperones in particular, uh, even though her dress was entirely within code and local regulations. Apparently, some of the fathers chaperoning the event had complained about her. They reportedly said that her dancing was too provocative and that she was going to, quote, cause the young men at the prom to think impure thoughts. 
<laughs> Sorry for laughing. She ended up uh, being kicked out because all these fundamentalist Christian dads couldn't stop leering at the teenager, and of course, they blamed her for it. Is it, it reminds me of blaming the victims for being raped for being attractive? Am, am I out of line here? No, I mean obviously there's a big difference in degree, but it's the same kind of thing of like assuming that women's self-presentation or women's clothing choices or women's behavior somehow just automatically controls what men do. And, you know, it's just about letting men off the hook for controlling their own behavior. And, and Amanda, do you, the event was at a prom for, for homeschooled kids. Do you think such blaming of the girls for being oh, sexually attractive that is that blaming more prevalent among fundamentalists? Have you any research or sense on that? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's not even like that's something I think fundamentalist Christians in a lot of cases would actually all agree with. This isn't even something that there's a point of dispute. Um, you know, in the secular world, I think there's a lot of debate over these sorts of things, whereas in fundamentalist Christianity, at least in the sort of far-right homeschooling Christian patriarchy circles that that these, most of these kids kind of move in, um, it's explicitly um, taught that women have a responsibility not to, quote-unquote, cause men to stumble. That's actually like a very common phrase in fundamentalist Christianity, um, and they have all these lists and... Um, printouts and all these other things explaining how women are supposed to dress and behave themselves to not cause men to, and, and the word is always stumble. So it's considered sinful to cause another to sin, and the responsibility is basically solely put on on women, even while men maybe, like, try to supposedly control themselves. It, it Men are told they're supposed to control themselves, but realistically, as this situation showed, it just becomes a a matter of everybody just obsessing over every inch of a woman's body to make sure that it's being covered properly. (laughs) It's it's amusing, but it's very disturbing. And so so this girl had to leave the dance. I wonder how boys were reacting. Was the reaction? Uh, you know, were they misbehaving? Were they stumbling? That 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 word stumbling. I, I, how would you define that? What do they mean by stumbling? That you know, if that that men, or at least you know, white fundamentalist Christian men would be on the straight and narrow path without uh, if they weren't attracted to women. That's a little odd. That's exactly it. With their they would say with their walk with God. Sin is a stumble, right? Oh, right, right. If, if you have sinful thoughts about wanting to have sex with a woman, then that is a stumble. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, it's brutal. <laughs> so that's the, that's the women's fault. I see. I I find it uh, more than a bit ironic that we in America, pretty much everybody in America, when they look at the you know, conservative Muslims in the Islamic world who force women to cover up from head to toe. They wear the chadors, they wear the the head scarves. You can't see anything, barely even the eyes, in some cases not the eyes. I, I, I wonder, 
if that's something similar? Is it to protect women from men who can't help themselves? Do you see any uh, similarity or, or you know oddity that here we are disgusted with with those awful conservative Muslims and the fundamentalist Christians here at home? Is, is there something on a similar track there? Oh, they're exactly the same. There's no difference. And and that same kind of it, that mentality where if if women give in to a certain amount of the logic, then um, you know the fundamentalist men just keep pressing the point. Like you see that in both cultures. I would say you know it's a, the book Persepolis has this uh, the comic book about growing up in fundamentalist Iran has this really great scene where the main character is following the street dress code. She has no hair peeking out. She's got the the head covering and everything on. And some men, some poli- Iranian police officers um, single her out and say, you're wiggling your, your ass too much underneath your, your clothes when you walk. Ah, uh, I see. And he just loses her temper and is like, just stop staring at my house. <laughs> Like, the fact that, I mean, regardless of where you are in the world, you know, once the logic that women are there to control, like, women are obliged to control men's choices, feelings, or behavior comes into play, then there's no limit to what will be asked of women. I mean, because it's the the very premise is ridiculous. The only person who can control you is you, you know? And I'm not saying that men shouldn't think sexual thoughts, so I... You know, you should just kind of, you know, it, it's not that hard, which was a point I made in the post, which is like, in the sort of secular urban world that is always being bashed by the conservative press, men, tend, most men tend to just go along in life. They see women wearing all variety of clothing, including very little, and they manage to not sexually harass them, wear at them, or be terrible about it. They... <laughs> They, they can, you know, they can have their thoughts and think what they want without having to make it a woman's responsibility to deal with them, you know? Boy, they're... <laughs> that hard. It, it seems like these, uh, a lot of these fundamentalist Christian white men uh, want to have and are determined to have power and control over women, and yet, the way you described it, Boy, they're giving women a lot of power. The men are helpless to <laughs> this stuff. I mean, that that's really kind of strange, I think. And there's this idea in, well, with most secular people anyway, that, you know, the thing about no means no, you know, and that that there's no justification for violence against women. And let's face it, uh, rape is a violent act. It's not a sexual act. It's a violent act that... Uh, it's up to men to control it, that if a woman, no matter what she wears, no matter how alluring, sexually attractive it is, if she doesn't want to have sex with this guy, end of story. Is is this something that fundamentalist Christian men can't deal with, do you think? What what have you found on that? You know, unfortunately, you're right that, like, it, it does sort of carry over. While, obviously, there's this official condemnation of sexual assault and fundamentalist Christian circles. There has been a lot of stories coming out recently that sexual abuse is rampant in the homeschooling and Christian school environment in no small part because 
when young women report being raped, they're often immediately subject to the the intense questioning of what did you do to cause him to stumble, <laughs> you know, and and shaming and being treated like they have failed some way or they're impure. And it's particular. I, I recommend going to the New Republic and reading a piece about Patrick Henry College where it's particularly disturbing because it shows how that logic plays out the same no matter what. You know, it's a very, very conservative Christian school. None of the young women that were sexually assaulted that were interviewed had been drinking or any of the other excuses the secular world comes up with to to minimize rape. And yet they were subject to the same kind of treatment. And I, I think it's important, therefore, to realize that you know, it isn't ever about what a woman does. It's, you know, if you are rude or assaultive towards her, that is on you, you know. And I, and just, you know, getting, like, not, you know, the rape thing is, like, I think a little bit more in your face. But, like, the, you know, the leering and the sexual harassment thing, I think a lot of people feel that's a little bit more excusable to do if a woman's dressed a certain way. But it... It's still not. It's still terrible, and it's still rude. I mean, didn't I? All I can think is, didn't your mama like teach you not to stare at people? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and especially uh, thinking about this this uh, dance, this homeschool dance. Here, I can just picture it: the the teenagers' fathers up in the balcony. Uh, one, you can really picture leering at the teenage girls. Teenage girls can't help it if they're. Teenage girls, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and men find it attractive. We're talking on the Burt Cohen Show this half hour with Amanda Marcotte about uh, fundamentalist Christian homeschool treatment of girls and the roles that they have to play and taking away power from men. Should Do you think, Amanda, that this is a message to women in conservative communities that they should expect to feel unsafe in sexy clothes? Yes. And then that is, uh, I mean, it's clear that that is the <sighs> intention, is is to make them, at least make them feel insecure and paranoid all the time. Ah. And it's one of those things that, you know, a lot of experts I've talked to in this sort of, who study this sort of thing say, like, particularly in American Christian fundamentalist culture, Girls are given a, a a dual message of like they are supposed to be attractive and be sexy, but they're also supposed to always be monitoring this invisible and ever changing line. And I, you know, of where they've crossed over and now they deserve to be treated poorly. Ooh. And it's impossible to know where that line is because the line is always changing. And I thought that this story was a really good example because the girl that had laid out a dress code. The girl made sure her dress fit the dress code, and yet she still got harassed because, it, it, you know, because the rules were never really the rules. The whole point of the rules was to always keep you insecure. You know, And I, but if she had shown up at the dance, I, I can guarantee you right now, if she'd shown up at the dance just wearing a potato sack, she would have gotten a different, like, kind of abuse and been told that, you know, she needs to be more mindful about being attractive to men. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that you often read a lot of Christians, the same Christian fundamentalist sources that 
scold women for being immodest, will turn around and tell women that they need to be pretty and pleasing to the eye so that they can attract a husband. And that's a game, like, it's basically set up to be a game you cannot win. And, yeah. Absolutely amazing. And I I have found, Amanda Marcotte, that a lot of the uh, the gay bashers, the guys who get incensed about gay men being in their midst and they, they actually, you know, bash and, and beat up and even sometimes kill uh, gay men. It's because the bashers are kind of insecure themselves about their own sexuality and uh, are, are, you know, they wonder if deep down inside if they're attracted to these attractive men. Uh, and I wonder if there's something similar here with, do, do you find that socially conservative men tend to be more insecure and ashamed about their own sexuality? Is this part of the problem? You know, I have to assume that that's true. I mean, obviously, by making it all about the women and what the women do, these men have created a wall of silence around their own thoughts oh. and feelings and desires. And that obviously starts to, it starts to make, it, after a while, you start to think that's the point. You know, by putting mm. all the emphasis on women, they can avoid actually talking about their own feelings and thoughts beyond just simply, like, posing, like, yeah, I'm a man, I like Playboy, I like to look at women. Yeah. And then immediately turning around and, again, making that women's fault as opposed to either, you know, uh, just, a, a, it's kind of natural for men to look at women, but also... Like it's your job to keep it in control, you know. Uh, it seems so common sense, but then again, uh, oftentimes common sense doesn't rule the day. Now, Amanda Marcotte, social conservatives insist they are trying to desexualize our world. They're concerned that you know women out there in the secular world are being too sexual and that you know it's sinful they're leading men astray they're saying they're trying to desexualize our world in what ways might that backfire do you think well i think it was really obvious in this situation a 17 year old girl goes to a prom wearing a fairly normal not at all like outlandish dress you know it covered everything normally it was uh, i would say by modern standards a fairly modest cocktail dress, and yet these middle-aged men just, they, they see sex just oozing out of every corner. They can't, they act like they can't control themselves, as if this is like the most, like, the, the, the atmosphere at that prom sounds like it got really sexually, like, charged really fast, and in the most gross, perverted way, as opposed to a fun, flirty way, which is what kids are, should be allowed. And all I could think to myself was, reading this, was, you know, I live in New York City, like the hotbed of liberal, secular, oversexed. You know, you can walk around half naked here, and no one could, no one will look at you twice. Right. That's basically what I realized is like, you get on the subway here, and a woman could get on wearing like you know a bikini, sure. and like nobody would like almost no one would leer at her or harass her. Certainly not all the men in the room, which is what it sounded like at this prom, that all the, the adult men were so beside themselves to see a girl in a normal cocktail dress that they just, they lost it. And I'm just, you know, in the secular, liberal mecca of New York City, you know, women can walk around looking 
or barely wearing any clothes, and men, by and large, will not behave that way. I mean, a few will, always, yeah. well, but most won't. Yeah. Most and, stay in their lane. <laughs> and stay in their lane. That's Boy, I wish more drivers would do that. And, you know, they're trying to desexualize the world, and guess what? You know, sex has always been here, probably always will be, and if people are interested in, uh, you know, in... Uh, and having a future population, you know, and it's kind of necessary. And it seems like it's it's kind of backfiring that they want to desexualize it in a way they they're kind of increasing the focus on sex. It's it's really bizarre. And I get the impression that in social conservative areas of America, women are expected to be dominated and controlled by men. Is this clamped down on women looking? attractive related to that you know if women look attractive they have to be controlled is, is there some kind of connection between the the incessant desire to dominate and control women and clamping down on women being attractive related to that white male domination and control yeah no absolutely i mean it certainly it, it, in fact it's, it's the primary way i think in a lot of ways that control over women is exerted, just constantly making and changing and making them dance and change all, uh, like, all these rules of, like, you have to wear this and you can't wear that and you must look this way, but not too much that way. And, you know, it's basically about making women just feel like they, like, if you're just doing that dance and just playing that game all the time, you know what you never get to do as a woman is think, you know what, I want to wear something because I want to wear it, or, you know, I want to look this way because that's what makes me happy. You know, that's not even on a table for women in these cultures. Mm. Like, because everything's about being attractive but not to, being sexy but not to, and then, of course, you know, always having to, to change yourself for other people's opinions. And it's, it's, really, it's really sad if you think about it. Yeah, it really is uh, in- incredibly uh, repressive. And they, you know, these a lot of these social conservatives uh, often point to social liberals who are fine with, uh, you know, gay marriage and things like that. They point to social liberals for sexual licentiousness. What's your response to that? Here's the thing. Sex is normal and healthy and a normal part of human life, just like food or sleep, or anything. And if you think about, and if you accept it and embrace it for what it is, it actually becomes easier not to let it dominate your life. <laughs> um, uh. so if, you, if you've ever been on a diet and calorie-restricted, what happens to you? All you think about is food. <laughs> all you think about is food. You can't think about anything but food. You just spend all your time thinking, I am so hungry. If you can't sleep, if you have to get up at 4 a.m. to catch a flight and then you're on a plane for 24 hours because of delays and stuff, all you can think about is sleep. Of course, sex is the same. If you don't, if you deny yourself a healthy, normal sexuality, then you're going to become weird, obsessive, and perverse. If you allow yourself to have a, a, a normal, healthy sexual life, it, it is contained and it is good. It's a part of your life as it should be. I mean, nobody's anti-sex it here. Like, I guess that's why they think we're over-sexed or because we're not against it. But, I mean, what happens is you see people 
have a handle on it. They can they can go about their daily business without making everything about sex. Mm. And you know, I, I get accused all the time of being some kind of like horrible flatter and slut. And it's like you know what? I probably get through a lot more of my day without making it about sex than most of the people who make that accusation at me. <laughs> You know, I'm, saying that being, I'm not saying you shouldn't be sexual. You right. should be. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's part of life. You're right, and I can think of so many examples who you know people they're doing without something, and here sex, repress sex, repress sex, repress sex. They're thinking about sex all the time. It's a little weird, and let's hope we can learn from this from this particular lesson with this this girl, this 17 year old girl, and. Uh, if people, you, interesting observations, it always has. You, you've been on the show before, Amanda, and hopefully you'll be on again. If people are interested in following uh, your uh, journalism work, some website to which you can point them. Um, you know, I think the easiest way to follow everything I do, because I write for a lot of places, is to follow me on Twitter, at Amanda Marcotte, just my name. And I also write for Slate's XX Factor and Law Stories Pentagon on a daily basis. Well, thank you so much. Very, very interesting. It's uh, We talked about money and then sex. Hey, what could be more fun? Thanks so much for being with us, Amanda. Thank you. Bye. Larry Coriel with a song called Sex.
you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.